Well, we have been on a journey through the 23rd Psalm, and it's a psalm of praise uh, when we're in pain, and so how meaningful it is, and we've been week by week uh, memorizing Psalm 23, and so this morning we're going to recite together Psalm 23 verses 1 through 5. Now, those of you who've been here for the past few weeks, you know what the program is now. We're going to recite it three times. We're going to give you the answers the first time. Then you're going to get the first letter or a couple of words peppered in the second time. Then we're just going to go cold. Are you ready? Say amen. All right, here we go. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. All right. That's good. We can read. <laughs> okay. Round two. A little tougher. You ready? Here we go. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. All right, good. All right, here we go. You ready? Take a deep breath. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Amen. It's, be it's beautiful to hear you reciting that. Thank you. God be praised. Amen. And so this morning, we will consider Psalm 23, verse 6. And I've tagged this message, God's Relentless Pursuit for My Life. Say that with me. God's Relentless Pursuit for My Life. Psalm 23, 6. Surely goodness... And mercy will follow me all the days of my life, 
and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. I am the most blessed quadriplegic in the world. Johnny Erickson Tata spoke those words recently. She said, when pain jerks me awake at night, I first glance up. And the digital display on the ceiling, well, if it only shows the second watch of the night, I try to push through the pain and breathe my way back to sleep. But if the clock says 4 a.m., I smile. Because Jesus has awakened me to share communion with Him. And even though it's going to be hours before I sit up in my wheelchair, I get to be with my Lord. Do I need more sleep? Of course. Will my pain subside? Unlikely. But at 4 in the morning... There is a more necessary thing, and it makes me happy to think that long before dawn, I am among the early ones who are blessing Jesus, filling my chest with Jesus, rehearsing Jesus' scriptures, murmuring Jesus' names, whisper-singing Jesus' hymns that cascade one into another, all filled with adoration to Jesus. It's hard to do that when you're wearing an external ventilator. And so I wordlessly plead that he unearth my sin, fill all my cavernous empty places, and show me more of his splendor. And he always responds with kindness. He sees me lying in bed paralyzed and propped up with pillows and encumbered by a lymphatic sleeve and wheezing air tubes, a urine bag, and hospital railings that hold it all together. Real happiness is hard to come by. And many Christians default to the lesser, more accessible joys of our culture. But the more we saturate ourselves with earthly pleasures, the more pickled our minds become, sitting and soaking in worldly wants to the point that we hardly know what it is our souls need. And it's then that we're tempted to seize upon that loan approval, that job promotion, that home team victory, or rain clouds parting over our picnic. We see those as glorious blessings sent from on high. Yet if Jesus were counting our blessings, would these make his top ten? She says, I am the most blessed quadriplegic in the world. And it has nothing to do with my job, a nice house, my health, a car pulling out of a handicapped space just as I pull up to the restaurant. It does nothing, has nothing to do with the books I've written, how far I've traveled, or having known Billy Graham on a first-name basis. We are blessed, not when everything is going for us, but when all of us is going for God. Amen? Now, there's a woman of God who understands the heart of Psalm 23. There's a woman whose faith is not paralyzed by the what-ifs of life. Her faith is energized by whatever. Whatever. And why? Because she can say, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not fear. 
I shall triumph and I shall dwell in the good lands, through the bad lands, and into the best lands. The Lord is my shepherd. Can you say that? Amen. What I want today, church family, is this message to intensify your desire to dwell with God. Psalm 23:6 answers this question. How can my desires for God intensify? That's what this verse answers how can my desires deepen how can they increase god i want to want you more how can that happen and what we see in psalm 23 6 is that david's desires for god deepened because something happened to david look at the text chapter 23 verse 6 says surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. That's what happened to David. God followed David. God pursued David. And then as a result of something that happened to David, David responded. He responded with desire. He responded with increasing desire. He desired God more and more. That's the part of the verse that says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let me throw this big idea your way. It's this. God chases me to change me so that I will choose him more and more. Can you say that? God chases me to change me so that I will choose him more and more. So there's the chase and then there's the change, and as a result of the change is this intensifying desire, this intensifying choice. God, I want you more and more. God chases me to change me so that I will choose him more and more. That's what I'm seeing in Psalm 23, verse 6. And here's why this is so important. Look up here, please. I would feel terrible if any of us walked out of here thinking that church is merely a location to transmit religious instruction. You see, belonging to a church is about belonging to a culture. And the culture we choose will form us into the people we become. And you know that already, don't you? Because you grew up in a family. And your family shaped you, you're shaped, you're shaped by the culture of your family, and then you help shape the culture of your family. And it's that way in church culture. So what do these verses teach us about the kind of culture that God wants us to become? And Psalm 23, 6 says that God wants us to become a culture of goodness and mercy. And my prayer is that after our time together here, these two virtues will just, just become activated more and more and more. Goodness and mercy will become evident in your life. But here's the deal. They do not just self-originate. No, they, become the, they, 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 they come as the result 
of a chase, of a pursuit. And so let's talk about the chase here. God chases me. You say, where is that? Oh, that's there in verse 23, uh, chapter 23, verse 6. It's, it's the verb follow. Follow. <laughs> See, follow is, that's really a thin verse. It should be stronger. They did not invite me to the translation committee here. But it really is. It's the word for pursue or chase or hunt down, track down. Surely goodness and mercy will chase me. Use your imagination for a minute. You're driving nonchalantly down the interstate. You've spent the weekend in Chicago. You're on your way home. You're somewhere between Kankakee and Champaign, and all of a sudden, in the rearview mirror, you see, you see some lights flashing behind you. The brights, they're coming up on you. It's a jet black SUV. And you get over in the right-hand lane so that it can pass you on the left because it is moving. But it doesn't pass you. It gets into the right-hand lane, and it starts tailing you. And, and, and you look through your rearview mirror, and all of a sudden you see a sign that's, that reads, Secret Service. And now you got a pit in your stomach. You're thinking, well, what did I do? I, I'm not a counterfeiter. I didn't write the president a nasty letter. What, what did I do? And, 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 and in the middle of all this, for some crazy reason, you make the decision to accelerate. And, and you don't pull over. You try to get away. And so you're roaring down the freeway nearly 90 miles an hour. Your puny little car starts shaking and everything. And, of course, you know, that makes you think of all the other times that you've been speeding. And so then you really start feeling guilty. And then you start rehearsing all the other sins in your life that your conscience remembered. And and now your guilt grows more and more and more. And, oh, now you remember that if you get just one more ticket, your your license is going to be revoked. And you're not going to be able to take that hard-earned trip to Florida with your family. But, but. You just keep going, but you can't just keep going because you've got a puny car, and your car simply does not have the power of a government-issued jet black Secret Service SUV. And you finally get forced over. And you're sitting there trembling, and you fumble for your wallet. You can't find it. Now you're in trouble. Now you're in trouble. And now the agent, who is impeccably dressed in a suit and tie and has one of those really cool sunglasses that those Secret Service agents wear, they get out of the jet black SUV and walk up to your window and say, Sir, do you have a guilty conscience? And then the agent hands you your wallet and says, That hotel you left Ask me to catch up with you and bring you your wallet that you left on the counter. Now you feel like a fool. And as you reach out to take it, the agent says, oh, there's one other thing too, sir. That they had a drawing this morning there at the hotel for a sweepstakes that you registered when you checked in, and you just want a free two-week trip, all expenses paid to Florida. And if you phone in your acceptance by noon today, you'll get to go. Here's my cell phone if you need to use it. So God is our good shepherd. That was not a personal testimony, by the way. (laughs) That's an illustration. God is not only our good shepherd. He's not only our lavish host, 
But he's an agent pursuing you with goodness and mercy every day of your life. And he is fast. David thinks back and contemplates, how did I make it this far? How did I make it? Have you ever thought about that? How did I get this far? The answer is God's stubborn pursuit. He chased me down, which is all the more remarkable when you consider David's life. Remember, this was the David who'd committed adultery with Bathsheba. This was the David who murdered Uriah the Hittite to cover it up. This was the David who deceived his country into thinking he was somebody he wasn't. This was the David who took a census when God explicitly told him not to. This was the David who was pursued by the goodness and mercy of God. But why goodness and mercy? Why not faith and hope? Why not peace and joy? Because in the Bible, goodness and mercy are often used separately to describe God. And when you glue them together with that conjunction and, then you're really seeing God for who He is and what He does. God's goodness and God's mercy together with that mighty little word and is another way of describing God Himself. For God Himself chases me down, David says. And why? Because he's good. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. God is good. God is tob. Tob, that's the Hebrew word. You pronounce it like T-O-B-V, quickly, tob, tob. It appears 700 times in the Bible. You've watched one of those home improvement shows, haven't you? And at the very end, there's the reveal. But before the camera shows you the house, you always see the expression on the owner's faces. And their expression is always tov, good, good. You see the good on their faces. Then you see the house. What about that gourmet meal you had? Put that first bite in your mouth, or maybe it's that first sip of coffee that you had when you got up this morning. What did you think? Good. That's what you thought. Huh? Good. Good. Good means the world is right. Good means there's a beauty. Everything is where it should be. There's a moral quality to tov, and there's an aesthetic beauty to tov. In Genesis chapter 1, after each day, the scripture says, God saw that it was what? Good, tov, good, tov, yeah. And then God made the man and the woman, and afterwards he said it was very what? Tov, yeah, tov, say either of them, that's fine. In Exodus 33, 18 and 19, Moses, who'd spent so much time with the Lord, the longer he spent with the Lord, the longer he wanted to spend with the Lord. And he finally said to God, show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness, my tobeness pass before you. 
Psalm 119, verse 68. The psalmist says, God, you are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. And the implication is, is that if I will learn and live your word, I will become like you, God. I will become good and I will be one who does good. You know what I think? I think sometimes we downplay goodness because we don't want to give the impression that we teach a works-based salvation. We don't want to teach that, you know, you have to be good enough to get to heaven. Well, we can never be good enough for heaven, but God wants us doing good. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works God is good and God is mercy mercy so good is tov tov and mercy is hesed you're learning Hebrew today hesed hesed say that with me on three one two three hesed hesed his hesed mercy what is that it's his loving kindness. God is kind. He's good. He's merciful. God's mercy hunted David down. David was a wanted man. You are a wanted soul. You're not here in our worship services by accident. God is accelerating his hesed mercy in a way that is pursuing you and chasing you and hunting you down. He's putting friends in your path, believers who are praying for you right now, loving you, treating you with kindness and goodness and mercy. And you're saying, why are you doing this for me? And the only reply is because God's done it for me and there's enough to go around. See, you can run from God, but you can't outrun God. Ask Saul of Tarsus, who was not looking for Jesus the day he became a Christian. Jesus pursued him and arrested him. Jesus said, Saul, you are my chosen instrument. And through you, my gospel will go to kings and rulers and authorities. This was the Saul who presided over the death of Stephen. This was the Saul who dragged husbands and fathers and wives and mothers out of their homes and into prison. This was the Saul who arrested and persecuted people for Christ, but this was the Saul who was pursued by Christ. This is Saul, who once said, I was a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent man. But I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Goodness and mercy put me down and then picked me up and holds me tight. So goodness and mercy aren't meek. They're mighty. Goodness and mercy. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, he says that God is rich in mercy it's the only time in the bible where it says that god is rich in anything of all the things paul says god is rich in mercy you cannot bankrupt the mercy of god it's impossible he's good and he's merciful 
And you know what the result is? Here it is. He chases me to change me. The result is change. God's goodness and mercy irresistibly reorient my life so that I look to Him and want Him and desire Him. And that's in verse 6. That's that phrase, and I shall dwell. I shall dwell. Some of your translations there in the footnote say, I shall return to dwell. And the idea is that the more David lives with God, the more David wants to live with God. That is to say, David's desire for God never dulls. It intensifies. He keeps wanting God more and more. So God both satisfies him and, and uh, makes him want God to satisfy him more and more. God, I don't ever want to leave you. And God says, you never will. Back to that interstate. You're there on the side of the road. And just when you're breathing easy, the Secret Service agent says, oh, by the way, you're under arrest now, and you're going to need to come with me. And so you leave your car there on the side of the road, and you get, you get in the back of that grand SUV, and soon you realize you're not heading for a federal courthouse, but you're going out into the country. And you see this magnificent estate with 200-year-old oak trees. And there's this beautiful oak mansion. And you say, where are we? And the agent says, oh, this is my place. I want you to live with me. That's your cottage down by the river among the willows. It's free. <laughs> I'm going to go get your family right now. I thought we could all have dinner tonight. Hopefully they won't try to run away too. It's all because of goodness and mercy. Not goodness alone, because we are sinners in need of mercy. And not mercy alone, because we're fragile and we need goodness. We need both. We need goodness to supply every want, and we need mercy to forgive every sin. Goodness provides, mercy pardons. And, and not just for now. Oh, no, David says, for a really, really, really long time. <laughs> Goodness and mercy. I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now take a look at that psalm again, Psalm 23. Let me ask you something. Where is God? Where is God? Well, in the first part, we see that God, our shepherd, is leading us he makes me lie down he's out in front and and then then when i go through the valley of the shadow of death he's with me so he in the first part he's out in front but in the valley he's with me he's right by my side just because you can't see god doesn't mean he can't see you goodness listen goodness and mercy may not separate you from the valley but the valley can never separate you from goodness and mercy. Hmm. God's with me. God's before me. God's with me. And then here in verse 6, we find out God is in hot pursuit. He is bringing up the rear. I'm surrounded. He's in front of me. He's with me. He's behind me. Church, that's security. 
And so no wonder the chase leads to the change. Our, our God does not stay in one place. He's not the God who says, well, you've got to come to me because I'm God and you're not. The gospel declares the God who goes after us when our spiritual ancestors, Adam and Eve, were hiding in the bushes to cover their bodies and their sin. Did God wait for them to come to him? No. Genesis 3.9, God says, where are you? And listen to me, God never asks the question that he doesn't already know the answer to. God goes on a search and rescue mission for us. Moses can tell you about that. He fled to Egypt. He fled from Egypt to reinvent himself after he murdered. And 40 years later, after he thought he had a new life as a shepherd in Midia, he saw a burning bush. God had tracked him down and gave him a mission. You go back to Egypt and bring my people. Jonah can tell you about that. What about that unnamed Samaritan woman in John chapter 4? She'd been married five times, and the man she was living with, she was shacking up. Alone in life and alone at that well, she met Jesus. And he made a missionary out of her. And then she started acting like one. And John 4, 4 says, I love this, he had to go through Samaria. So this was a divine appointment with a missionary that he had chosen. This is the God we worship. He's the God who chases us to change us so that we'll choose him more and more and more. And listen to me. When God chases you and then changes you, your choices and your desires get simplified and deepened. And here's what I mean by that. Psalm 27, verse 4. David says, one thing I have asked of the Lord. One thing. One thing. I just want one thing. One thing I will seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. That's what I want. I don't want that job. I don't want that promotion. I don't want, I don't want anything else. God, I want you. That's what I want. I want, to, I want you, and I want to live with you. You are my shepherd. Can you say that? Well, if you're in Christ, if Jesus has chased you down, and if you've been changed by grace, so it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, then I've got good news for you. When Christ lives in you, you begin to enjoy dwelling in the house of the Lord before you get to the house of the Lord. You miss that. I'll say it again. You can acknowledge God's dwelling when this world's at war. You can acknowledge God's dwelling when your heart breaks for others. You can acknowledge God's dwelling by prayer. You can acknowledge God's dwelling by serving and ministering and meeting needs with love. Are you getting it? Dwelling with God begins the moment. 
you come to Christ. You don't have to wait until heaven to start living like you're there. Dwelling with God starts now. Now. And that is the point of the very first word of Psalm 23, 6. The word surely. You didn't think I was going to overlook that word, did you? Surely. Not kind of. Not maybe goodness and mercy. Not possibly goodness and mercy. Not, well, I think so, sort of, no. Surely it's a certain thing that I will return again and again to the house of the Lord. And church, what that means is that if you are in Christ, and if you can say of Him, He is my shepherd, then listen to me. The day you die will not be the last sentence in the book of your life. Instead, it will be the next to the last sentence in the book of your life. Because when you die, if you be in Christ, you will hear His final say of your life. And here's what He says, Matthew 25, 21. Well done. Good and faithful servant, come and share your master's happiness. For the Christian, death never has the last word. It has the next to the last word. The last word is goodness. The last word is mercy. The last word is God. The last word is surely. The last word is from our resurrected royal shepherd who is the only innocent person who ever lived and he faced death not for himself but for us and one day at his appointed time each of us will walk through that valley of death you and I and as you face death as you face death, Proverbs 14.10 becomes very real. The heart knows its own bitterness. And no one on earth can go through that door with you. Your friends can't go with you as you die. Your wife can't go with you as you die. Your husband can't go with you as you die. Your children can't. But there is one who is closer than a brother, who has promised to never leave you or forsake you. And this one is our chief shepherd who has firsthand knowledge of what you're facing. And he will be with you as you face death. And if you're in him, he says you will not taste death. That is to say, you will just be transitioned. You will cross the threshold from this realm into the realm of holiness and goodness and mercy and glory into life everlasting with Him, His life, His death, His resurrection. He is your surely. And He is your goodness. And He is your mercy. What I'm saying, and I'm going to sit down with this, follow Jesus, and your life's last sentence will be verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, 
and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.